Holy Spirit move in this group, that the Holy Spirit illuminates scripture as we look through uh, Luke this morning, and that he blesses um, Jack's preparation time, and that we uh, find that application as we walk out today in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Sorry about that. There were a couple of tongue twisters there. That's that's on me. I, it's it's my job to send out the slides um, every week before uh, base camp, and if for a multitude of reasons, but one of which to give your esteemed host Mike a opportunity to see if there's any words in there that he needs to practice a little bit. And uh, I think I I think I dealt him a sour hand this morning, but uh, he did a great job. It's great to be with you again this morning. Always uh, enjoy speaking. Um, my second opportunity to talk about the Gospel of Luke. Today we're going to talk about sort of the latter part of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10. So we're going to be covering quite a bit of material. Uh, I promise not to read it all and hopefully uh, we'll keep it moving. So what we're this section of Luke we're moving into, uh, the writer of our guidebook calls part two, the words of the Savior. We look at... Uh, Acts 1.1, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Why are we talking about Acts? This is a, a, a session on Luke, right? Well, what is my former book? Well, that's the Gospel of Luke. We have Luke again writing, talking about what he wrote about last time. So what Jesus began to do, what we called part one, were Luke chapters three through nine. And our writer called that the act or the uh, actions of the Savior, the deeds of the Savior, and part two, the uh, words of the Savior or what Jesus taught. And then uh, later, after we get through with Luke chapter 19, we'll enter part three, the going forth of the Savior. So the pivot here is sort of a uh, it's a literary pivot and it's also kind of a literal pivot this is when Jesus essentially turns his ministry around and starts heading back toward Jerusalem and so the thing they talk about in part two the way we open this up is the way the first thing he's going to teach as he makes his way to Jerusalem what is the way well um, maybe the first thing that pops to a lot of your minds comes from John 14 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, is this the inspiration for what Paul would go on to talk about as the way? Um, and I, as, as I read the first of part of the commentary on this, and he was talking about the way, I was like, yeah, I think Paul said something about I persecuted the way. Um, is it anywhere else in the New Testament? Well, it's... In a lot of places in the New Testament, this word that means way also means uh, road, path, guide, plan. So you can imagine there are a lot. You look in your concordance for this um, for this Greek word that means way or road, and there's, there's about 120 occurrences. I tried to look at all of them and see which ones had to do directly with Christianity, and I came up with these six. They're all in Acts. And they're all either a quote by Paul or a description by Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, as to something Paul was doing or talking about or talking about Christians. So it's really just Luke and Paul, it seems, that use this term. If you find other um, 
other instances in the New Testament where the way is used to mean Christianity, I'd be happy to be corrected on that. Well, what is the way? Um, in at least these few passages of Luke that we're going to talk about, the way is how to be followers of Christ and how to be his herald, how to go f- before him, how to announce his coming. We're going to talk a little bit about that. So how to be his follower. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And he said to another man, follow me. And that man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. That seems pretty harsh language to give to some people who seem to be interested in joining your crusade, in joining your ministry. Is what Jesus telling us here is that we have to surrender all comforts or we have to surrender all um, customs and traditions, that we have to surrender all relationships, even with our close family? I don't think so. I think what Jesus is talking about here is what happens when there's a tension. What happens when there's a parting of the ways? I think many of you, especially in the in the culture we're living in now, where uh, especially if you're working towards the government, you start getting told what you can and can't do uh, in the office space, what you can and can't talk about, maybe what you can and can't wear if, if you have children who go to certain schools. Oh, you can't wear that. You can't preach to these people. So when there's tension, Jesus calls us to put certain things in second place. Security, customs, conventions, traditions. Yes, even your own affections and personal relationships. But what he's saying is if I lead you to a place where there's tension, if I lead you to a place where maybe you you're, you have to make it a little uncomfortable, if I lead you to a place where maybe you've got to tell your boss, I'm sorry, that's who I am, or if I lead you to a place where your family is ridiculing you for, for your pie-in-the-sky flying spaghetti monster beliefs, Christ is saying, put me first, follow me and not those other things. I don't think it's a strange message uh, or unfamiliar message to us, you know, sort of in the evangelistic community. But this is how Jesus puts a sharp point on it for us. How to be his herald. If you want to go forth and announce or proclaim the coming of God, there's a passage for that. The Lord appointed 70 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him into every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. Go, I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. When you enter a house, say peace to this house. And if someone who promotes peace is there, stay with them. Your peace will rest on them. Stay there eating and drinking whatever they give you. Do not move around from house to house. If you enter a town and are welcome, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we will wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet 
be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. What he's telling his workers is be prepared. Be willing and ready to work. Be willing and ready to accept danger and derision from those who don't support or even antagonistic to your message. Be focused in what you're doing. Know the message you're proclaiming. And above all, proclaim the good news with a sense of urgency. The kingdom is near. Confess and witness, eloquently or not, that Jesus is Lord. You know, um, the, the, the suggestion is made that, that being a herald of God, being a proclaimer of God is, is reserved sort of for people with special gifts. But remember that even Moses said to God, how can I talk to Pharaoh? How can I free your people? I stutter. I can't even really talk in public. And what did God say to him? Did not I make your mouth? I will give you the words. So the message here to me being doesn't take someone special. It takes someone who can focus. It takes someone who can accept danger and derision and proclaim the news with urgency and is ready and willing to work. Just as important as talking about what the way is, we should talk about what the way is not. It's not an achievement or an accomplishment, but rather it's a gift. A revelation in in Luke, the, the passage goes that Jesus stopped and thanked the Lord, his God, for revealing this to these 70. Thank you for revealing yourself to them as children, gifting them with his word and with his with his gifts. It's also not an activity. It's not something we do. Rather, it's an attitude. An attitude of service, an attitude of proclamation. And it's not a way to life, as we're going to talk about here in a moment, but rather a way of life. The way is about being, not about doing. The next passage as we move through this section of Luke is the good parable of the Good Samaritan, perhaps the most famous of Jesus' parables. We're probably all pretty familiar with it. Starts out with a, a young man who's an expert in the law coming to Jesus and saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The emphasis here is mine, not bold in the scripture. Well, let's look at this for a second. Inherit eternal life. What is he asking Jesus about? And if you trans transliterate the Greek that's in, in the text there, the words used, he's saying, how do I become a tenant in your Eonian or ongoing for eon life? How do I become a tenant? And this word struck me as I was doing my, my uh, research. I thought, that's so cool. That put me in mind of other things like a house upon a rock. My father's house has many rooms. Isaiah saying, I lay a precious cornerstone in Zion. And even that wonderful song, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And we might tack on to the end of that, and will never die. This is what, I love this word picture of being a tenant of his, moving in, being accepted. So, 
I'm going to take you on a little rabbit trail here for a minute. As the word inheritance, uh, this all came to my mind. On, on Sunday, the uh, worship team sang a great song called Battle Belongs by Phil Wickham. And there's a lyric in there that says, when all I see is a cross, God, you see the empty tomb. Man, it really stuck me on Sundays that you, how often do I just sit there and stare at this cross? And I'm like, dang, is it hard. And there's an empty tomb. Should I be surprised about the cost cross? I don't know. I mean, aren't there today, every day, people being accused, seized, mocked, scourged, derided, tried, convicted, punished, beaten, even killed unjustly? Lack of justice is not anything spectacular that we recognize in the Christian faith. That's that's part of being human. The empty tomb, however, that's a surprise. That's something you don't see every day. That through his suffering and death, we are given this, this ability to be tenants in this everlasting life. Which do we inherit? Paul writes in Romans, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share also share in his glory. What are the sufferings? The cross. What's his glory? The empty tomb. This is our inheritance. We share in that. We accept the cross. We know that's coming. Maybe we accept it a little more as Christians. We understand that, that having faith and having a, a devotion to your faith will probably bring a little more cross than some people get in some stadiums. But we accept that. We, we welcome that because we know what the inheritance is. End of rabbit trail. Back to my sermon. Where were we? Where did we leave that poor... Uh, uh, expert, the bunny does not want to leave. Hey, here, bud. Yep. We left our uh, expert in the law there hanging out. Teacher, what must I do to inherit life? And what, is, what does Jesus tell him? 